Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce Murray. Welcome to my podcast, Going Long, where every week we spend time with, obviously, athletes and, of course, those that don't participate in sports but have a love for the world of sports. And that will include our next guest, who is a contributing editor of Rotten Tomatoes and the co-host of the Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong podcast, comedian Mark Ellis. We wanted to have him on because as the calendar turns to late May and we get into the boys of summer part of the year, we thought it'd be fun to talk with a guy that, you know, reviews movies for a living and went back and looked at some great baseball movies historically and ranked them from one to 10. We're not going to agree on all of them, but who doesn't like talking baseball movies? So that's exactly what we did. Just in time for summer, we talked baseball movies with Mark Ellis from Rotten Tomatoes. I hope you enjoy this conversation. All right, Mark, let's get to it. You're the contributing editor of Rotten Tomatoes, the co-host of the Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong podcast, which I'd love to know the, the, the theory behind the name, Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong. But, but how do you become a contributing editor? Like, I always wonder when it comes to whether you're a food critic or a movie critic, how do you become a critic that has any credibility? Well, I'm still working on the credibility part of that, but, and if you want credibility, I don't recommend naming your podcast that the company you work for is wrong, but here we are. So my career in film criticism goes all the way back to 2008, 2009. Uh, My buddy and I, Christian Harloff, we're both stand-up comics and that's how we met. And we just wanted to be regular dudes talking about movies. Um, and YouTube was just starting this this thing, and it was kind of the Wild West. And so we showed up, and we just started doing this little talking head back and forth thing. And we kind of patterned ourselves after Siskel and Ebert, because Siskel and Ebert, as much fun as it was to see them review movies, when they would get into a little scrap with each other and a little verbal altercation, <laughs> it was great. It's like, that's the stuff you live for. And so that was called Schmo's No. And that has since morphed into a trivia show called the movie Trivia Schmodown, which I'm happy to quiz you on later in the show. But sure. then it also has just given me so many opportunities to get my feet wet and to really get to know film critics that were generations ahead of mine. So I, I get to call Leonard Malton a friend and I, and I get to <laughs> talk to people like that. And so you really learn the ropes pretty quick when you start to get into those film critic press screenings. And I've always had that kind of in uh, that I'm an outsider on the inside mindset. I feel like Sean Connery and Nicolas Cage that I just kind of broke into this sort of walk of life and then getting hired by Rotten Tomatoes to contribute, to do video pieces for them. And now the podcast, it's just, it really has been a, uh, a charmed existence, but it all goes back to, to stand up w- w- without the, the chops that I have doing stand up, none of this other stuff come. All right. So, so just to be clear, Uh, Had you and I known each other back then, I too could be a movie. You had no expertise. You were just one of the first to understand what to do on YouTube. And now you're a a big movie critic. You could have been me, except with better hair. I mean, you you have it all, Bruce. You might have missed your calling. I appreciate it. You don't have bad hair yourself, by the way. Let me just say. but, But so I'm amazed at what Rotten Tomatoes has become, because I will admit to you that I was early on on the Rotten Tomatoes train. Like, I was one of those first website guys that would go. And when my wife would say, let's go see this, I'd go, hang on a second. Let's see what it got in Rotten Tomatoes. But we always had these disagreements. I was a a, a critics guy and she was a viewers person because she always said the critics don't know what they're talking about. Let's see what the viewers had to say. 
And then we would always go to a movie. And if it didn't align with what I thought, she would say, see, the viewers were right. And I was wrong. So which do you align yourself with, the critics or the viewers? It's so funny because that that conception has been in my head since I started doing film criticism is, okay, well, you have critics and maybe they can get a little too highfalutin on their high horse sometimes. Then you have the audience that just loves shoving popcorn in their face. And when you go on Rotten Tomatoes now, you have the tomato meter, which is how the critics have felt about it. Their combined sort of thoughts on fresh or rotten. Then you also have the audience score metric, which is polling verified audience users. And so you get two different standards. And what I found is that the truth, as in most things, is somewhere in the middle. So as far as aligning myself with critics or audience members, unfortunately, it is a case by case basis because there's some things. And that's one of the impetus for the podcast that we do is Rotten Tomatoes wrong about this movie or that movie. There are movies that movies that critics celebrate and i cannot fathom why and i think that that's why rotten tomatoes works so well for big sports fans like you and i is because we get to see a number that is indicative of quality and while that number isn't necessarily a true scoreboard because that's just how certain other people feel about the movie it gives us some sort of working understanding of how the what we might perceive the movie Here's my problem. My problem is I am a very simple movie consumer. Like my my son, who I, I consider to be like a movie connoisseur and a movie snob, if you will. Like <laughs> like he'll sit down with me and make me watch Double Indemnity from the 50s with Fred McMurray, a black and white movie. I'm like, I want to watch Notting Hill. It's got a happy ending. You know, they get together and that's all I care about. And, you know, I oftentimes walk out of a movie that has no Hollywood ending. You know what I'm talking about? that critics love because it leaves you wondering and it leaves you, I don't want, I, I'm, I'm not smart enough for that. I really need to just be hit over the head with a happy ending and walk out feeling good because the rest of my life has so much uncertainty in it. Is that too much to ask for? Right. You, you want a sense of normalcy and you want some level of predictability because if I'm investing two hours of my life into this, the rest of my life, I have no idea how that's going to unfold, but at least I can control what happens here to a degree. I'll tell you a great story. My dad was so upset at the 1986 animated Transformers movie. He took the day off work to take me and my little brother. We were probably six and four at the time to go see the movie. might've been our first movie theater experience. And we're in there. We're loving Transformers. And in that movie, guess what? Optimus Prime, the hero dies. He eats it and we're walking out of the theater and my dad was so upset because he took the day off work. He's just trying to keep these kids happy. Now his kids are crying because he took him to see a movie that he was sure was going to have a happy (laughs) ending. And so for movie folks, it boils down to this. I'm a huge Star Wars fan. Do you love the ending of Empire Strikes Back or do you love the ending of Return of the Jedi? I myself am a Return of the Jedi guy. Why? Two words, Bruce. We won. We won. We did the thing that we've been trying to do for three movies. We blew up the Death Star again. And The Empire Strikes Back, great movie. Critics love it. We lost a hand, and one of our guys is frozen in carbonite. I'm with you. Uh, listen, I like the one where I walk out feeling really good about myself. Now, you get, uh, I can tell already, we, we are so dramatically different in age. Your first movie was The Transformers, and I'm too old for The Transformers. I mean, what does that tell you? My, my first in-theater experience, I remember this, my first in-theater experience was bed knobs and broomsticks. I think it was in 19, I'd like to say 71 or 72. Uh, you, mm-hmm. cannot, you cannot have heard of that movie, can you? 
I have heard of Disney's bed knobs and broomsticks. I'm just really? going to say double indemnity because that would have been way too no. far back. But. <laughs> no. I was not in the theater for that one. I was dragged into the basement for that one by my son. But but it makes me wonder, like, when you want to be what you do, and I'm sure you get into debates. I think it's interesting. I host a show on NFL radio every day. And so I'm considered an expert in the National Football League. And yet, when I sit down with my friends, they go, well, you don't know what you're talking about. I go, this is what I think is going to happen with this football team. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, all right, you're probably right. How the hell do I know what's going to happen? So I'm sure you get into debates with your friends about movies, the quality thereof, and they tell you that you don't know what you're talking about. And the truth is, in the world of art, nobody knows what they're talking about. It's just opinion. And predicting what's going to happen in a movie, which is where the world has gone, especially with social media and trying to guess what's going to happen next in the Fast and Furious franchise. Are they going to incorporate Jurassic Park into one big universe? What's going to happen with Star Wars? What's going to happen with all these big movies? It's the same thing as when I sit down and I look at the schedule and I try to plot out how many games my Washington football team can scrap together a win and You just don't know. You have a feeling you want to be optimistic. But when it comes to conversations about film or sports, at some point, even guys like us who make a living doing it, you got to check your ego at the door because we may have seen an opportunity to get into the business that other people didn't see. But everyone has a right to their own opinion. And that's something that I like reminding folks of. Even when we do the Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong podcast, it's like, look, I have my opinion. My co-host Jacqueline Coley has hers. We don't always agree, but you have to have confidence in your own opinion. Don't let social media get you into that void of thinking everyone has to agree with me or else I'm wrong. It's okay to be out there on an alleged one once in a while. All right, before we get to the Rotten Tomatoes list of the top 35 baseball movies and some other sports movies historically, two things I wanted to mention. One is, how'd you become a Washington football team fan? Are you from Washington? Yeah, my, my old man was from Oxon Hill. Uh, I was an Air okay. Force brat, and Oxon Hill is kind of right in the shadow of what was RFK Stadium. Sure. And then we did two different stints, one in Rockville, Maryland, and one in Columbia, Maryland. But he actually has roots to the Washington football team, which used to have another name, all the way back up to Boston, where my grandfather on his side is from. So he was a fan of the Boston Braves, who then became the Boston Skins, and then they moved down to Washington to become the Washington team, and then they changed their name last year. But it was always in my blood from the day I was born. First date that my mom and my dad ever went on, he talked her into going to a Washington-Philadelphia game at RFK Stadium, and Bruce, she wore her Eagles jersey, and so my dad had to sort of be the protector. And I think right there and then she realized, okay, this guy's willing to stick by me <laughs> while the rest of RFK wants to throw beers at me. I think he's going to be a good egg. Now, are you old enough to have gone to games at RFK? I am, and it's one of my most uh, prized childhood set of memories is because RFK Stadium, there was just nothing like it. And for a kid, when you go there in the early 90s, we were really good. We won the Super Bowl in 91. And so you just kind of think we're always going to be this good. The stadium would get rocking. And when they talk about it feeling like an earthquake, I live in Southern California now. I know what an earthquake feels (laughs) like. RFK felt like that, man. It was something special. And you just don't get a stadium experience like that anymore. Stadiums are more comfortable. There's Wi-Fi everywhere. There's five-star restaurants, but they ain't RFK. Well, listen, I married a Washington native, although Bethesda, Maryland. So, you know, Washington football team family. When Mm -hmm. we first met, and I'm a Giants fan. I'm living in oh, D.C. Boy. I was doing radio down in D.C., by the way, on WTEM, the all-sports radio station. Yeah. Uh, the year that Mark Rippon led the team to the Super Bowl. 
And I remember going with her and her grandfather to RFK to football games. And the great thing about being a Washington football team fan at the time was if you had season tickets, everybody had their routine of how to get to the stadium. <laughs> this you got to go this road you got to go that road you know you got to be in the car at 9 17 a.m we have our bag you know this was pre-dance night so you could bring lunch and a cooler they had the whole thing we i mean i'm telling you i was almost part of the family because i had the routine down with them after a while except they would never take me when washington played the giants as as is right they shouldn't <laughs> you should be at home watching that on tv <laughs> listening to Madden and Summerall, and usually back in those days, Parcells always had Gibbs' number for some reason. So yeah. congratulations. But yeah, we had it down to a science because by that time, by that Super Bowl year, we were living where we eventually settled when my old man got out of the Air Force in Williamsburg, Virginia. So it was like a two and a half hour drive. So I knew the I knew the route by the time I was 11 years old. When sure. we got close, we would crank the Doobie Brothers China Grove and we'd hit Benning Road. And my dad was the kind of dad that is not going to pay to park at the stadium. He's not going to wait. <laughs> of course 10 bucks. Not. So he had the CRX that was all the way out on the grass. It, it, this is a grassy knoll situation. He would park out there. And half of the reason he did that, I'm convinced, is because I was a chubby kid. And so as soon as the game ends, you can never <laughs> leave a game early. But as soon as the game ends, we were hoofing it and we were running back to the car to beat everybody else trying to get out of the parking lot. And so the majority of calories that I burned as a as a youth were spent running out of RFK Stadium. Yeah, listen, I love the stories of folks that went to that stadium. Like you said, it was an experience that was just so unique. And now they're in the antiseptic. You know, I don't even want to get into that with you. You, you know all about the stadium. I've now. seen what that field has done to quarterbacks, and it's not good. Uh, no, it's not. But but I really wanted to get you on. First, when they said, hey, hey, Mark's available, I said, love Rotten Tomatoes. As I said, I go back to the beginning. Oh, and I, by the way, I wanted to mention this Star Wars. So you're a huge Star Wars fan. I'm a huge Star Wars fan. I was in summer camp when Star Wars came out, and we went on a camp trip to a movie theater. And this was before the multiplexes, but there were two theaters. And I don't remember what the other choice was. It was maybe Gremlins or something like that. And I'm not a sci-fi guy. I didn't like Star Trek growing up. I didn't like any of the, I didn't like Battlestar Galactic. I didn't like any of the sci-fi movies. All my friends are going to Star Wars. And I said, I'm going to go to the other one. And they were like, no, you got to come. And everybody's wearing these pins that said, may the force be with you. And I'm like, you're all losers. I'm not, I'm going to, I got to wear a pin to go into this theater. And they all talked me into going in. I put the pin on. And of course, the, the second half of summer camp was, you know, lightsabers and, you know, going out and being Darth Vader. I was hooked. So I have been a Star Wars fan since seeing it in the summer camp in 1977. And by the way, back then, as you know, nobody, re it, it hadn't become the social phenomena that it later became. But we walked in not knowing what to expect. And what an extraordinary experience. And what a great way to walk into a movie theater. The lost art of having no idea what no the clue. hell is about to happen. Imagine having no idea what's going to happen. And that those movies, they are not shy, Bruce. They introduce themselves to you right off the bat. It gets all quiet. And it says a long time ago in a galaxy <laughs> far, far away. And then boom. That's why I love Star Wars so much. Because if you see in a packed movie theater, it, people are still there on their phones. They're doing whatever. As soon as those letters hit, everything's done and the focus is on the screen the huge star destroyer coming overhead is the first shot you were the kid that was going to go walk into annie hall yeah. and you were going to miss all of that yeah exactly and here i am all these years later is it bad that i still have the the original set on vhs four five and six it's have, great i have it because you get to see the unaltered endings you get to see I, the non-special player i don't have a vhs player so i don't get to see anything 
Uh, I just I can't might call, part with them. I'll call my ma. She might be able to send you <laughs> our old VCR. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure my mom has one too. Believe me, they're going to stay in the closet where they belong. But but you're here to talk. I wanted to talk baseball movies with you because I always think, first of all, it's a fun debate to talk sports movies. Yeah. And I, I know I said, make sure you get Mark a note because I've had this longstanding debate. When I was doing morning radio in Chicago, it would always come up somehow. A new sports movie comes up. You're debating greatest sports movies of all time. We, I always had a running debate with my partner about Caddyshack. And I said, Caddyshack's one of the greatest sports movies of all time. And he goes, it's not a sports movie. It's a movie about social dilemmas. And I said, the last scene is about a golf tournament. It's a sports movie. So I'm going to bring you in with your lack of expertise and ask you to settle the debate. Is Caddyshack a sports movie? Caddyshack is 100% a sports movie. That's because it. Because I can it. throw you whatever your buddy considers to be a sports movie, whether he goes Bull Durham or he goes Field of Dreams or even a comedy like Major League. They all are it really anything a sports movie is. It's a drama in sports clothing. And so you're using sports as a conduit to learn a lesson about life. When you walk out of white men can't jump, you had fun watching basketball. But the lesson of that movie is listen to the woman. And so all those idiot kids like me that wanted to see an R rated movie with street ball, you walk out and you say, I should probably get a girlfriend and respect her and hold her up as the queen. She is. right. I, I actually like that movie, but I was never a fan of Rosie Perez. Did you, do you like Rosie Perez? Oh, I Something love about her annoyed me. Oh, you like her? I, I, I loved her in that movie. It, it would have been a very tough relationship <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. I am equally as bad with money as Billy Hoyle is. But I love the Jeopardy storyline. I love the foods to start with the letter Q. Rosie Perez is, is one of my faves. All right. So so since we're going to talk baseball movies and again, some of the movies that that are listed on your list of the top 35 on Rotten Tomatoes go back to well before you were around, before I was around. So is that part like do you as a movie critic now feel obligated to go back and see some of the classics historically, not just in the world of sports, obviously, but, you know, all the classics. And then I got another question before we get to the baseball movies themselves. But do you go back and, and feel it's your obligation to lock yourself in a room and catch up on some old movies? <laughs> I, I don't take it to an extreme where I'm, I'm someone like a author of Catcher in the Rye, J.D. Salinger, where I just have to go out to my cave and just sit there and watch movies all day for work. But I always have loved movies because every time I see a new flick, regardless of how good or bad it is, it gives me a greater appreciation for the, the craft of cinema. And so going back and watching those classics is not only fun because they're great movies, it's also an education in how movies were made, what has translated into the modern era, and what has been left behind. And so you see so much of classic movies in our modern films, but generations don't even realize how close they are. And you don't even see, and it's the same thing with foreign films is a lot of times a movie like Infernal Affairs is just turned into The Departed or a movie right. like Ringu is turned into The Ring. And so just getting to see influences and where it came from, if you're a fan of the Rolling Stones, you should take it upon yourself to go back and listen to all the great blues musicians that inspired them because you're going to get a lot out of it. All right. Here's the other thing I wanted to mention when it comes to critics. I think that you should have your critics card until you review a movie that it's impossible to review poorly. And you do, <laughs> you should lose your card. I'll give you an example. Here's the, here's the analogy I would make. You may not, you may not like Tom Brady. You may be, I was a Peyton Manning fan. You may not like Tom Brady. 
But if you say he's not a great quarterback, you have no credibility. You've lost all credibility. You may not call him the greatest quarterback of all time, but to say he's not a great quarterback is a mistake. You'd agree, right? It's impossible to say. Yeah, I, I would say Tom Brady and Toy Story are very similar, where you may not love Pixar animation. You may not, you may think it's just for kids, which it's not, but you can look at that movie and you can unequivocally appreciate how great it is. And so a negative review of Toy Story, you really want to get someone in a room and just be like, hey, what's going on with you? Okay, so, so did it get 100% on Rotten Tomatoes? I, I'm not looking at Toy Story. What Do you know what it got on Rotten Tomatoes? Toy Story and Toy Story 2 are both a perfect 100% okay. on Rotten Tomatoes. But, Toy Story but, 3 fell all the way down to 98%. And those are the people I want to get sequestered with and say, hey, is this is this a Toy Story 3 problem or is it a you problem? Right. So, so <laughs> The Godfather, that yeah. doesn't get 100%. I mean, I can understand it not being your genre. You may not like the movie. You may not like that kind of movie, but you can't say it's a bad, it's impossible. Whether it's the right. acting or the cinema, I'm not even an expert, but the acting, the cinematography, the story, et cetera, it's almost a perfect movie. And yet some it, people didn't like it. it it's great. And, but here, here's the one qualifier I'll give you is that when you look at the tomato meter and you see something is 98%, you say, well, how is that not 100%? Right. The reason being is that a critic may not have loved that movie it doesn't necessarily mean that they hated it. So if you rate a movie rotten, it doesn't necessarily mean you think the movie's garbage. It means that on the tomato meter, anything that is 60% or above is fresh. So when I'm reviewing a movie, I, Christian and I used to use the scale of schmoes. We would give a movie zero schmoes through five schmoes. So anything on our scale that was three out of five schmoes or better is a fresh movie. And that's going to get counted right. as a fresh vote for that movie on Rotten Tomatoes. Anything that, I, and I would go decimals, Bruce. I would go 2.9 out of five schmoes. That's what I gave Batman v Superman. Now, does that mean that I think it's a terrible movie? No, I got a lot out of it. I just couldn't quite get it to be a fresh film. So it's, it's a terrible movie. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a horrible movie. It's got its redeeming values. I'm not a fan of the whole Martha storyline, but it's cool to see Batman and Superman fight each other. Why are they fighting each other? It's Batman. First of all, I've never bought into the whole Superman thing anyway. I'm a Marvel guy. Okay. Huge Marvel guy. Grew up reading Marvel comics. I never bought into First of all, Superman, he's an alien. That's all he is. And I'll tell you something else about Superman. If you don't have, if you don't have an alter ego that has conflict, you really have no character. Like Spider-Man had conflict. Iron Man had conflict. Superman was an alien. He came from another planet. He had the whole thing. I'm telling you, get rid of the whole DC universe and we, we'd be fine. That's, That's probably why Batman was so upset. Batman had a good inner conflict. And he's like, well, this guy just comes down and he's perfect. I got to off him. <laughs> right. But the bat, the Christopher Nolan Batmans, those were great. Yes. And yes. so were the Jack. Yeah, but we digress. So, so did you go back and watch all the baseball movies? Have you watched all of them or no? You haven't watched all of them. I've seen most of them. I, I recently actually wanted to see, because of the time of year it is too, I wanted to go watch the Jackie Robinson story which is sort of a documentary hybrid, which came right. out, I believe, in 1950, starring Jackie Robinson, the yeah. year after he won National League MVP and three years after he crossed the color barrier. And he plays himself in the movie. And I enjoyed it. I enjoy it's just great seeing Jackie because you see pictures of him, you see him stealing a base, but to actually get to watch a full movie with, that's the guy. That, that, that's, and Chadwick Boseman was great as Jackie Robinson in 42, it's like that's the guy and so it's the same thing if you have unearthed footage of the beatles it's like you just get to go back and just watch them be it's really really cool and so for any 
baseball fan out there, I would say you may not love the movie, but go back and check out the Jackie Robinson story and that poster because the movie came out in 1950. So it's in the style of classic movie posters. Yeah. Bruce, it belongs on every sports fan's wall. It is gorgeous. Uh, by the way, I agree, but I will say, and I took my kids when they were very young to see 42. That came yeah. out about a decade ago in 2013. My kids were now 12, 14, and, and one a little younger. And ever since I've seen that movie, even though I've seen the Jackie Robinson story, it's almost like Chadwick Boseman is a better Jackie Robinson. than. Ja it's a bizarre thing to say, but he was so good in that role. You know how some guys, when they play a role, it, they just become the character? He was so good in that role. I almost think he was Jackie Robinson, kind of the way I do with Miracle when I see, um, you know, Herb Brooks. And, you know, I think it's it's uh, who was it? It was um, uh, Kurt Russell, Kurt yeah. Russell, you know, like there were just guys that are so good. At, they become the character. I felt that way about 42. It's the craft of acting. I mean, look, you could take me. I've been in a handful of commercials, but if you were going to cast a Mark Ellis in a movie, you get Topher Grace because he can play me better than I can play myself. <laughs> By the way, that's good. You could be a Topher Grace at parties. I see that. He Here was, I met him one time. I, I met him a couple of times, actually. I met him at a party one time and we instantly shared a look like, oh, we're a mirror image of each other. I saw him at Chipotle and we were both at Chipotle in line next to each other. We ordered the same exact burrito. So you could be parallel brothers from a different universe is what you're it's saying. It's like Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. I could just be alternate universe. It, maybe there's another world where I am on that 70s show. Who the hell knows? I think we're breaking a story here. Uh, <laughs> but, he, but here's something that bothers me about some, some sports movies. Most of them actually pull it off today. I, I don't know how you feel about Bang the Drum Slowly. I love the movie Bang the Drum Slowly. I have a really hard time with sports movies whose stars are clearly not athletes. Yes. And watching Robert De Niro in the movie, he can't play baseball. When mm -hmm. I watch For the Love of the Game, which I, you know, Kevin Costner can be in any baseball movie he wants to be because he looks like a baseball player. But John, is it John C. Riley who was the catcher? It's clear John C. that Riley, he, yeah. he was never a baseball player. I get bothered by the, by the movies that cast people. There's got to be, look, I, I, I went to school with D.B. Sweeney. I did a podcast with D.B. Sweeney, who's an eight man wow. out. Now, I played softball with him for years. He was one of the best players on our team. I know he can play baseball. He played Shoeless Joe. You've got to be able to cast people in movies that look like they can act the part. Do you agree? The thing that bugs me the most, yes, I do, is for whatever reason, it's, it's, it's the throwing motion that always gets me. Sure. It's, it, you're either a pitcher on a mound or you're a quarterback, and you got to be able to at least make me think that you can either hurl a fastball or you can throw a tight out. I mean, th that's the thing. And it, ta it takes me out of the movie. And so the, the great football movies and the great baseball movies, I don't think by coincidence have those kind of at least actors that can pretend to be an athlete as opposed to someone who just showed up. And, and sometimes it's also really obvious if they just swap out the stunt man who can come <laughs> in and actually have a capable throw. So it, the, the movies that get it right are the ones that cast someone who has an athletic background. You are correct on that. Yeah. Kevin Costner, listen, like him or hate him. He's good in baseball movies because he looks like a baseball player. He throws like a baseball player. He's got me convinced he was a baseball player. Would you agree? And I cannot turn off for the love of the game. If that's on, I just the way they go inning by inning, I, I'm like, it's like I'm watching a game and, and I get invested and wrapped up in it. All three of those Kevin Costner baseball movies, Field of Dreams, Bull Durham, and For the Love of the Game, three of the greatest baseball flicks ever made. So, so For the Love of the Game, not in the Rotten Tomatoes top 35. No. I'm like you. I love the movie. My one complaint is it's a little long. 
it kind of goes on a little long at the end. Like I've gotten it, you know, let's get to the point where he, the arms falling off and he's going to throw the no hitter, but it's a really good movie. And again, happy ending. It's a really good movie. And by that time we just trusted Kevin Costner with baseball <laughs> movies. It, it, it's like, okay, you gave us those two classics. So here, do anything you want. You want to throw You're you're 45. You want to throw a perfect game? Have at it. So here's a question for you, because I'd love to get your top 10. Do you have a top 10 or do you just go off the Rotten Tomatoes top 10? I have my own top 10. I, okay, I, I want to hear your top 10 in a second. Moneyball is number one. Now, Moneyball, I don't even know if I can, you know, it's hard to tell Jonah Hill, Brad Pitt, you know, they don't have to play the game. So it's not relevant to whether or not they actually fit the roles. It seemed a little odd when it was cast. This is just to me. Turned out to be a great movie, but I couldn't put it at the top of my list of baseball movies because that's one where it's it's not about the game. You know what I mean? It's about the 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 workings behind the game that made it. And I like it, but it's do you is that your top baseball movie? In some ways, it is more of it's as much a repudiation of baseball as it is an endearing tale of baseball because right. it's basically telling everyone that, Hey, everything you've been doing with baseball for the last over a hundred years has been wrong. Here's a new way to do it. But the reason why I'm so attracted to Moneyball is because it's still, even within all of those numbers and statistics crunching, you still get that classic ragtag group of ne'er do wells who somehow come together for that magical season. And then in the Oakland A's case, that was actually a true story, which makes it even better. And, and Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill, phenomenal, earned their Oscar nominations. But you can go as far back as the Bad News Bears. You can do the Keanu Reeves movie Hardball, which is underrated. You're not going to like that ending. Um, and then <laughs> and a league of their own where it's like, this is just this is who we're stuck with. Let's make the best of it. And I think those are what make the great baseball movie. You know, it's funny because when Moneyball came out, there was a great debate in the actual baseball community about the movie itself, because as good as it was and as good as they put it together in terms of the analytics of it all, there are a lot of baseball critics that say, you know, if, if you notice one thing about the movie, they don't talk about a pitching staff, which had Barry Zito and Tim Hudson. And they had a great pitching staff. And at Isringhauser, the time, which, too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which wasn't which wasn't uh, uh, which wasn't an analytics thing, because analytics was about on base percentage. And it went into, you know, the slappy first baseman that they had. But there were a lot of people that were critical because they said the strength of that team was pitching. And they kind of even ignore that. in the movie. They almost go out of their way to ignore that in the movie. Yeah. And I, I do think that that Art Howe got a little shortchanged uh, from a managerial perspective, too. Philip Seymour Hoffman does a great job playing him. But it, it, the manager and GM clashing, I, I understand that. The GM isn't just the hero in that story, though. I don't care. If, if you have to start someone that you're not comfortable starting, you still as a manager, you, it's your job to get that clubhouse in order. And he did a tremendous job of that. So he deserves a, the, the not the lion's share of the credit, but he certainly should be mentioned. All right. So let me hear your top 10. And then I'll share what my favorite baseball movie of all time is. You know, there are certain movies for the love of the game comes on. You've got to mm -hmm. watch it. I'm sure you have a handful of those movies, Shawshank Redemption, if it's on. I'm sitting there. My wife's like, how many times have you seen this? And I'm like, it won't be the last, you know, I don't know, 250, but, you know, there are certain movies that whatever was going on in your life comes to a halt because that's on. So I have a couple of baseball movies like that, but let me hear your top 10, starting at number 10. Yeah, most of my weekend lack of productivity is directly the result of Ted Turner and his network playing Jaws <laughs> and then American Gangster and then whatever else. And I just I'm stuck watching it. So 
my number 10. But this is your job now, so you can do this. And, and you know, like when I watch football, I tell my wife, this is my job. You can sit down and watch a movie. It's your job. I can. I can. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. It is a great thing to clock in with a big bucket of popcorn. Not many people can do that. Yeah. So go ahead. Number 10. Uh, number 10 for me is I have a soft spot for a movie that came out recently that's about college baseball, and that is called Everybody Wants Some, which was directed by Richard Linklater. And it is sort of the spiritual successor to his high school football movie, which was Dazed and Confused. So now you have Everybody Wants Some, early 80s, Texas town, uh, baseball is a way of life, and just them matriculating through. So there's not a whole lot of baseball in it, but I still consider it a baseball movie. And yes, I did squeeze it into my top 10 simply because I'm a monster Van Halen fan and you get the rare double Van Halen song in a row. You get everybody wants some into ain't talking about love during a party montage. What's a better 10 minutes than that? Well, well, you'd appreciate this. And my college roommate who made somehow made it into like this who's who in high school America where you had to send a photo, send a photo of David Lee Ross <laughs> and, and nobody picked up on it. He was there. His name was Brett. And in the who's who of high school America, there was a picture of of David Lee. Did I say Roth? David Lee Roth. David Lee Roth. Uh, yeah. Yeah. David Lee I, Roth. I, I just hope the picture he sent was from the waist up and he didn't get the chaps it was, in it there. Was just a headshot of David Lee Roth. Um, all right. I've never seen it. So is there a payoff to the movie? Like is, is, is the backdrop a life story or is the backdrop a game? It's a, it, it's a life story. It's, it's a slice of life tale. And so the game okay. is, takes even a further step back. And so you and your buddy who was arguing before, you're probably going to get into another argument. If he doesn't think Caddyshack's a sports movie, he yeah. may have the same feelings on Everybody Wants Some. But my number nine is a movie that is definitely about baseball, even though it does have somewhat of a tragic end, and that would be the Keanu Reeves film Hardball. Have you seen it? Uh, I haven't seen it. Now, I saw Keanu Reeves in The Replacements, which is a guilty pleasure. Same here. It's a, it's a terrible movie. I actually saw it like I had like some free time. I was at, I think I was at a Kentucky Derby and I had like an afternoon free and I went with my producer and both of us didn't want to admit that we liked it, but maybe it was because of the love interest in it. But, you know, gee, I don't know. I, I like the replacements, but I never saw the base. I never saw him in the baseball. So how is he? Uh, he's, he's great. And this movie came out around 2001, I believe. And he is the coach of an inner city team. So they don't have access to, a whole lot of uh, equipment or barely even a playground to cobble together. The movie itself is rotten on Rotten Tomatoes. It's 41%. And so this is one of those that I should probably have on the podcast someday is I, I think that this is a fresh movie because you really care about these kids and the fact that baseball gives them an outlet and gives them an escape from their life, which can be nightmarish sometimes. And, and Keanu Reeves is really good. He's been sometimes labeled as the best bad actor of all time. He gives a good performance in hardball and, and it was 2001. So those are, th those are two to revisit for you. Everybody wants some is going to be a lot of an easier watch though. Okay. Let, let me say this about Keanu Reeves. There's something really likable about him. Cause I don't think he takes himself seriously. Yep. And he, he's never going to listen to this podcast, but oftentimes I do think he's a horrible actor <laughs> and yet he's in some of the greatest movies of all time. The matrix, Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. Uh, mm -hmm. I love the movie Speed. I mean, he's in some great movies, and yet he's like sometimes uncomfortable to watch. Do you agree? Yeah, and and he's great in the John Wick movies too. And I, great. I, I think great. He, he's just found his niche. I think at at this point, and it was somewhere around when he was in Constantine 
which was the mid 2000s, where he just sort of realized picking up from the matrix and, and, and just going into this next phase of his career. First of all, none of us knew he was in Bram Stoker's Dracula. None of us knew he was actually a vampire and is just going to refuse to age for the rest of time. But they're, they're filming the next John Wick movie right now. And apparently the action scenes are even more bonkers than anything we've already seen. So I say, as long as he wants to keep doing them, keep bringing them. Yeah. Any good revenge movie, you know, whether it's Liam Neeson and take him on. Look, if it's a revenge movie, I'm all in. Uh, but again, we digress. So I haven't seen your number 10 or your number nine. Let me hear number eight. Number eight. I have a feeling you've seen it. It comes in at 88, uh, excuse me, 84 percent certified fresh on the tomato meter. Dennis Quaid as an aging pitcher who gives it one last shot to get to the majors. The rookie. Yeah, I'm I'm a fan of that movie because you know why? Tell me tell me why I'm a fan. Because I'm You're such a fan. Because 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 I'm looking that makes at you. Me cry is I going think you to still got a fastball. I think you still got. I think you can still get out there in the highway where they're tracking the speed. And I think that I think Bruce can still clock 70, 75. <laughs> I, I can just tell you that if 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 you can bring a tear, and I'm I cry in movies. Do you cry in movies? Oh yeah, that's where I let it rip. Funerals. Not going to get me to cry. Me Weddings, neither. never cried once. Movies will wreck me. I will sit and watch movies that I've seen so many times, and I, I, I don't want my wife or my son to see that I, I'm still, there's a tear coming to my eye. Let, last night, I'm, I, I don't know if I'm going to run this podcast after I share some of this stuff with you, uh, but <laughs> la last night I was sitting watching the end of Silver Linings Playbook. Silver Linings Playbook. Yeah. And I'm finding myself getting choked up. And I'm like, I don't, my son's sitting to my left and I'm like, I don't want to. So I'm like, I'm, I, I think I have a cold. I'm like wiping my eye. I'm like getting all choked up. I may have to edit this out. Silver Linings Playbook gets me choked up. What does well, that say were about you, me? Were you getting choked up because at your heart, you're a New York guy and Robert De Niro is now a New Yorker that has to pull for the Eagles. Is that <laughs> no. why you were weeping, Bruce? No, this was at the end when he realized he was in love with uh, Jennifer Lawrence and he chased mm -hmm. her down the street. It was the actual poignant moment in the film that gets me all choked up. I'm a sucker for that. I'll give you a better one. If you want a good cry, any of your listeners want a great cry, Night at the Museum 3. It's oh. not a joke. Here's why. Yeah. I'm a huge Robin Williams fan, as most of the world is. That sure. was Robin, one of his last movies. And there's a scene, he plays Teddy Roosevelt in that movie. There's a scene towards the end where Teddy Roosevelt is on his horse and he's saying goodbye to Ben Stiller's character because they solved whatever mystery they had to do. And the way he says goodbye to him, I, I would love to talk to Sean Levy, the director, about this, because the movie came out after Robin had passed. And I remember being at the press screening. Luckily, I was sitting by myself. And it was like Robin was looking at us and saying goodbye to us. It was such a long goodbye, too. And so I wonder if Levy left more of it in there, because that was how Robin was telling us all that we're going to be OK without him. I was I, it was like Marley and me times 10. It was, it was floodgates, Bruce. One of the best cries I've ever had. And you feel good after a cry sometimes. Yeah. Well, as somebody said, two yellow labs, Marley and me, I can't, I can't oh, watch yeah. the end of that movie now. It's hard. Um, so, so I'm a sucker for the rookie. Uh, that's mm -hmm. number seven. I finally seen a movie that's on your list. By the way, Awakenings makes me cry too. But I'm always taken off track when you bring up like Robin Williams. Uh, what's number six? Number uh, six, number seven is number seven, oh, number is, seven, right? Number eight was the rookie. Number seven, right? Number seven is one that I'm so happy people. Some people have seen it. I'm sure you have. It's 85 percent fresh and it's it was actually direct to HBO, directed by Billy Crystal. And it's called 61 yeah. with an asterisk because it's about that magical summer 
where it was Mantle and Maris dueling to see if either one of them could break the legendary mark from the great Bambino. Roger Maris ends up doing it with 61, but then people wanted to give it an asterisk because it was in more games. And just watching those guys go through that summer, there's laughs, there's a little bit of tears, and it's just a great insight into how baseball and the sport and the business of baseball was back then. Well, and, and Billy Crystal had, you know, as you know, a great appreciation for baseball. And oh, I yeah. think like he really wanted it to have an authenticity to it. I thought he did a great job with that too. I really do. Yeah. Um, so, so that's number seven. What do we get to number six? Number six is 42. Um, I, oh, I just good. think it's Finally. such an important movie. <laughs> well, I'm not going to kick <laughs> off with 42. I'm going to kick off with the Van Halen movie. Then I'm going to get you into 42. <laughs> it's, it's just even it, 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 I, again, it's, I, I don't think that the movie was as Disney-fied as, as it certainly could have been. Because there's one scene in particular where you get just a little glimpse into the overt, evil, villainous racism that Jackie Robinson went through. And that's just one scene. And it I, makes me uncomfortable. I think they undersold it, to be honest with you. I think if you've read a lot about Jackie Robinson, what he went through was far greater than what was really portrayed in the movie. Oh, well, Without a doubt. I'm just, I'm just saying that, that the fact that that scene is even in there makes me think, OK, well, if that is in the Disney fight movie, what is the reality of it? And right. it's it's horrifying what he went through to have the grace in the class and just to hold his head up high. And, and what Branch Rickey tells him, who Harrison Ford is greatest Branch Rickey in that movie, too. I was going to say, is, how do you feel about Harrison Ford as Branch Rickey? You know, it was great because that was uh, that movie was 2013. And it was when we knew that Harrison Ford was returning to play the role of Han Solo, but we hadn't seen him as Han Solo yet. And so anytime I'm that excited about a Star Wars movie, I like to do a scouting report on, hey, is Harrison Ford still bringing it? And, and I thought he brought it in that movie. Him and Chadwick together, those scenes, that's some great drama. Yeah. And, and you know, again, there, there are certain movies that I, I think if you're a baseball fan and have kids who are baseball fans, it's almost must see, you know, you may have Bull Durham on your list. We haven't gotten to that. You may have the rookie on your list, but there are certain movies that not only are great movies, but provide a historical perspective that sometimes you can't get your children to appreciate. You can't get them to read a book. Even uh, the Jackie Robinson story, while great is a documentary, they may get, I don't want to watch that. But 42 was a movie that they just loved the movie. And then mm -hmm. they also learned something from the movie. So it was really for, for all those things. It was, and it was so well acted. It's a gateway into learning more about Jackie Robinson. And I think a movie like that inspires people to go out and do more research, watch the documentaries, read the books, because what a life. Yeah, and I think it gives you a great appreciation, too, by the way, before we move to the next one on your list, about some of his teammates that supported him, a Pee Wee Reese, guys like that. Like, mm -hmm. you know, you, you come away and you go, it, it was good to see, you know, sometimes movies will make it, an, you know, all against one. And the truth is there were people, there were guys on that team that were supportive of him. Not everybody, but there was some, and it was good to see, you know, the, the, as you said, the Disney-fied version of all that. It was a very, uh, very crucial uh, handshake at home plate that yes. took place. Exactly. And, um, and yeah, and I think the movie does a good job of capturing that spirit. All right, so was that six? Did we go to six? That was number six. That was number six. I'm very bad. I, I'm amazed that you can do this off the top of your head. I'm forgetting it. We're number five right now, and it, you'd be amazed. It's only 10 that I have to remember. I haven't been able to do that. So we're at five. What's five on your list? Yeah, really, it, it boggles the mind that I failed calculus in college twice. <laughs> I have at number five, yeah. Bull Durham. Bull Durham is 97% certified fresh. It is hailed as, for many people, the greatest baseball movie of all time. I like it a lot. I love it, but it's just not even, it, it's good enough to be top five 
can't get it in the top three. Okay, I'm with you, and I don't know if you feel the same way. I loved it, saw it again, but when it's on, it's not must-see watching. Like, if it's on, I can move, I can walk away from it. There are certain movies I can't walk away from. Bull Durham's not one of those, although I do have a favorite line from the movie. Do you have a favorite line from the movie? There are certain scenes that if I know the scene is coming up, then I will keep Bull Durham on, but I don't necessarily have to be uh, in prison in my home for two hours to finish watching it. My favorite scene, the line that I love, the, the slow wet kisses line, the one that I love is where Costner is drunk and he found out that Nuke is going to the big leagues and he's just sort of realizing that where he is in his career versus where Nuke is in his career. And he's hammered and he's talking about the difference between being a big leaguer and being sent back to the minor leagues, which is him. And it's just one more hit a week. Okay. My favorite, my favorite scene in the movie and the line is when they have the meeting on the mound deciding what to get as a wedding gift. The manager comes out and they're like, what, what's going on in here? He goes, well, we can't decide. And he goes, well, candlesticks are nice. You know, I mean, the meeting on the mound, you figure it's going to be a baseball conversation and it's about a wedding gift. So that was it for me. But I'm with yeah, you. There are scenes that I want to watch, but I don't need to see the movie till the end. And I'm just a sucker for the, for the minor league lifestyle. I, I have some friends that are ball players and spend a lot of times in the minors. And I just, I'm, I'm a kid in a candy store listening to the stories, just being on the bus. And, and even the, the last dance or the 30 for 30 where Jordan, it's about him going to play baseball and just him being back in the minor leagues and just imagining what that was like. It's just a really cool thing because you are doing this, not because you, you think you might get famous, you might get that call up to the show, but just because you love baseball and you don't want to let go of playing the game you loved as a kid, there's something really special about that. Yeah, it, it's why I find Tim Tebow to be so fascinating. You know, here's a guy that had all the money, had a TV job, and then was riding buses for years mm -hmm. without any real chance to make it to the major leagues, but, but he had that love. All right, so that's five. You haven't gotten to two of my favorites yet, and I'm hoping that my favorite all-time is your favorite all-time, but what do you have at number four? All right, judging by our conversation so far, it's got a shot. I, I think it's got, it's got a chance. It's, I feel like Carlton Fist now. I'm just trying to wave... <laughs> Wave the ball. <laughs> Keep it fair. <laughs> uh, number four is Moneyball because I just thought okay. it was so well-crafted, well done, the drama going on behind the scenes and on the field. And you're going to get me to stump for Moneyball if for no other reason because the second baseman for the Oakland A's during that season was named Mark Ellis. That's right. That's right. Yep. But, yeah, and, and when I checked into the press screening, you give your name at the desk, yeah. uh, the guy checking in in front of me happened to be Mr. Dave Winfield. And Dave Winfield goes, and I'm like pointing to Christian. I'm like, that's Dave Winfield. He's like, I know. And so Winfield, as he's walking in, he hears me behind him. And I got a pretty deep voice for how I look. And I say, I'm Mark Ellis. And Winfield turns around thinking he's going to see a fellow <laughs> ball player. And I'm like, hi, Mr. Winfield. <laughs> how cool is that, though, that you're signing in behind Dave Winfield? Oh, it's, it, it was, and he <laughs> sat right behind me. And it was just, it, it was like the whole movie, I was enjoying it, but I'm also like, Dave Winfield's right there. Well, better than he's sitting in front of you, because uh, I'm not sure that you'd be seeing the screen if he was sitting in front of you. But, you know, by the way, do you get a lot of screening tickets? That's probably a pretty cool perk of the job, the screening tickets. It's a great perk, and sometimes they'll let you get a plus one. And the, the highlight of my career has been occasionally you will get invited to a premiere simply because the movie premiere is also doubling as the press screening for critics and so they can just get everybody in at once and i still have on my desk over there i have the invitation that i got for star wars the rise of skywalker where i've been lucky enough to go to the three premieres of the new sequel trilogy and it's just i mean you talk about a night to remember i get dressed up for those bruce i go big 
<laughs> I, I think I've been to maybe three or four, one of them being for the love of the game, by the way, when I was in Chicago, because, you know, you're doing sports radio and they're like, hey, we got a sports movie. You want to come to the screening? And I was like, sure, we're in. Uh, okay, so how did Chicago fans feel about the Detroit Tigers being <laughs> Um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that I, I was there with my wife. I think I was only talking to her. I'm not sure if I really took in everything around it. And then we walked out and I had, to, I was doing morning radio at the time. So I think I had to go to bed like 10 minutes after the movie ended. But I, I think, thank goodness that it wasn't the Cardinals. Yes, it, it wasn't the Cardinals. Exactly. Um, all right. So, so you're at number four and you still haven't gotten to my number one, which I'm now fearing maybe not on your list. And let me say this. I like Moneyball. I, I, I didn't love Moneyball. I liked right. it. Okay, right. I get it. It's number one on your list. It's number it's number four on your personal list. I liked it. I didn't love it, but I'll leave it at that. Number three. Very beloved movie is the comedy of all baseball comedies, and that would be the certified fresh. And, and I'm so happy to say it is certified fresh. Baseball, if you enjoy that ragtag group of individuals like we were talking about, but Sometimes a movie can be good and it can be elevated to great if you have the magician known as Bob Euchre calling the action. After seeing that movie, I want Euchre in every movie. I don't care if it's about sports or not. I want him broadcasting the action. I want him broadcasting Indiana Jones movies, Star Wars movies, Lord of the Rings. I want Euchre in everything. Okay, let me say this. You've gotten to my number one. Yes. That's yes. my number one baseball movie of all time. And I'm going to say this. And I think you'll agree. Every single thing about it is cliche. You know, yes. the, the owners are cliche. All the characters, you know, the big bad Yankees are cliches. Um, uh, who played uh, Wild Thing? Why am I blanking? Uh, Charlie, uh, Charlie Sheen. Sheen. Yeah. He's a cliche. The manager's a cliche. Tom Berenger, you know, the guy can't walk, but yet he's going to catch and, you know, beat out a bunt. That whole thing's a cliche. And as you said, Bob Euchre kind of ties it all together. But everybody works perfectly and it does have the ending that you want. And it's just, I don't know what it is about it. That's one of my, I can't pull myself away. If it's on it's, there's a ton of laughs in it. The grounds crew is funny. The whole thing. It, it's just from start to finish, the whole thing is a cliche. And yet the whole thing works perfectly. It's why when I eat food, if I, if I know I like a food, I don't need to know what's in it. I don't need to know what the ingredients were that made me like it, but I like the whole product as a collective. And I think that's one of the smart things that the replacements echoed is because in the replacements, there are certain scenes where you have Madden and Summerall calling the action. I think that's one of the reasons why that movie is so rewatchable to me is just because I will do anything to hear John Madden and Pat Summerall announce a game or even announce Keanu Reeves walking back into a bar to get a kiss. It's just those voices do something deep inside me, as does Bob Euchre when he tickles my funny bone. I, I can't help but wonder, and I don't know if you know the background on this, whether that was scripted or just ad lib, because his sarcasm at every level with, yeah, nobody's listening, you know, the whole thing. I mean, every line that he comes out with is just funnier than the next. And I've, I've seen that movie 50 times and I, I can't get enough of it. And I I'm still no surprised. I'm, I'm still, I'm still, there's a line in there that I forgot that hits me like it's fresh. And there's some great oral histories written about major league. And that is Bob Euchre being Bob Euchre. That is, that is a character that they had the character of Harry Doyle, but you get Euchre in there and you let him do what he does. Now, Corbin Burnson, he couldn't play baseball though. Dorn could not play baseball. <laughs> no, he, could, he could not play. And you know, it, it's a little bit of a sticking point with me, but the rest of the guys pulled it off. So I can live with that. All right. So that's my number one, mm -hmm. uh, which you got to at number three, which leaves two. 
I know it's not Moneyball, which is number one on the Rotten Tomatoes list. So now I'm curious. Give me number two. It's another movie that is very high on the Rotten Tomatoes list, and that is A League of Their Own. It is one of my all-time favorite movies in general, not just baseball movies, because we're getting to that point where it's like, these are just great movies. And it's curiously only 78% on the tomato meter, which is still, it's certified fresh, but it's only number 22, I believe, on the rankings currently on Rotten Tomatoes as far as the best baseball movies, according to the tomato meter. So that is way too low for me. Now, I don't think you would ever do this, but you're not doing that to be politically correct, are you? I like the movie. It's it's a nice movie. I I just I I you know I get it, but I, oh, there's so much in there. There's so every character. I gotta watch it again. Something and I, the sibling rivalry between Dottie and Kit is just one of the through lines that gets me through the movie. You also have the beginning of that movie is stolen by John Lovitz as a scout. John and Tom Hanks as the manager. And there's a very emotional scene that still, when I know it's coming, I'm like, oh, this is gonna hurt. When Betty Spaghetti finds out that it's her husband that was killed in the war and Tom Hanks has to break the news to her. There's just, there's a whole lot of emotional content in that movie, but the speech that Hanks gives to Gina Davis about baseball and why the heart of baseball, the difficulty level is what makes it great. That is something that's always stuck with me. All right, listen, uh, Hanks was great. And Lovitz, you're right, I think almost stole that movie at the beginning. So I'll give you that. I think I got to go back and rewatch it. There are certain movies that I've only, I haven't seen them in 20 something years. That came out in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And I remember seeing it and then never watched it again. So I think I got to give that another shot. Uh, and what's number one on your list? Yeah, give it a shot and hit me up as soon as you do, because I want your initial okay. take right after that's that, fine. because I might be talking to a teary-eyed Bruce. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm sure uh, you probably will be. Speaking of teary eyes, this is my number one and for sentimental, personal, and just because it's a great magical baseball story start to finish, our boy Kevin Costner in Field of Dreams and him pursuing the history of baseball, chasing his own past and the demons therein and having it all resolved at the end with the simple line, hey, dad, you want to have a catch? Yeah, it was. Uh, listen, that's one that it's hard not to get emotional at. There's something. That movie, I think if, if you ask people just off the top of their head to find, now there's two movies that are in my top 10 that you didn't put in there, which I'll mention in a second. But when you just ask them off the top of their head for the first baseball movie that comes to mind, I think it's Field of Dreams. There's just something about the setting, the cast, Burt Lancaster, James Earl Jones. Just, it's almost hard to put, it's, it's almost a perfect movie and I'm disappointed because I was trying to. I don't think I would have been able to pull it off, but I was hoping to take my kids to the Field of Dreams game that was canceled. You know, Major League Baseball was going to play a game on that field yep. mm -hmm. and then canceled it last year due to COVID. I thought that would have been fascinating. And I think it was the Yankees and the White Sox, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and they I didn't pull it, it off. Was. I think it was the Yankees and the White Sox down there. But there's just a whole – it's almost hard to put into words what – what that movie is because it's it's not real it's like a mixture of so many different things and yet you're right it ends up as a father and son having a catch it, it's for hardcore baseball fans but it's also for that frank capra-ness in all of us where we just want to be told a good story and, and there's things about that movie that bother me like for instance i'm i'm very upset that even after life has ended we still can't integrate and just have black players come to the field too. That's always bothered me. But also, 
it's it's this thing where if you really built a baseball field because you were sure that Shoeless Joe Jackson was going to come back, there, there's that iconic scene where he looks out and his daughter says there's a man on the field and it's Shoeless Joe. You know that every neighbor kid in Iowa would dress up in an old timey uniform and go out there just to torture poor Rake and sell to make him think for a second that Shoeless Joe was back on the field. So that's what bothers you about that movie. That's pretty <laughs> that's funny. That's what very because I would have been that asshole kid. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you would have. So a couple of things, and I know you only have a couple minutes left. I want to get to like a couple of other sports movies outside of baseball, but two that you didn't mention. One that had another shoeless Joe. I mentioned it to you. DB Sweeney playing in an eight men out, and I can see yes. that's not that, that why it's not in the top ten. I love the movie. That's for baseball fans. You know, Bull Durham. You take your wife. It's baseball is the backdrop for just a funny movie. Eight Men Out's about the Black Sox scandal. It's a baseball mm-hmm. movie. But it was also, it was gritty. It was, it was like dark. And it was just well played by the cast. I mean, it, it re- if, if you're a fan of baseball history, I think they really pulled it off. I really came away. And it came out, you know, it, 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 it kind of got ignored because, and again, I did a podcast with D.B. Sweeney. It came out at the same time as Bull Durham. And Bull Durham was the big release and it, it overshadowed it. It never really got appreciated, but it was a really good movie. Yeah, and 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 critics did appreciate it. Um, on the tomato meter, it is eighty six percent certified fresh, which is just one percent below Field of Dreams. And if you want a great double feature, I would say watch Eight Men Out first because it gives you a, a great backstory into what was actually going on with that scandal. And then you get the more sugar coated version of Ray Kinsella telling his daughter about Shoeless Joe and the events in Field of Dreams. So Eight Men Out into Field of Dreams. It's a good four hours. And the other one you didn't mention, which I love, this is one that I oftentimes find myself, I do watch till the end, because again, I'm a sucker for a happy ending, The Natural. Now, Robert Redford pulls off batting better than he does throwing, but he can throw at the end. He's having a catch with, um, I guess it's his, was it his little boy? It was his little boy, right? At yeah, the end of that movie. Yeah, and he's but, not the best thrower of the, but, but he does look like he can knock one out of the park. It so does look like that. he can swing and... I mean, you talk about picturesque when he hits the light stanchion and he's bleeding and the lights are exploding and he's running the bases. I mean, that's come on. You, you want a Hollywood ending. That's it. It's perfect. It is yeah. a perfect ending to that movie. And, and, and I do enjoy watching it. I find the romance leading up to that between Robert Redford and Glenn Close just it bores me to tears. It's like I'm spending time me too at a dinner party with a couple and you know they're going to break up and it's like guys can you just get this over with but i do love the beginning of the movie with the whammer played by joe don baker and wilfred brimley you talk about if if you needed to cast a gruff manager a sparky anderson type you get wilfred brimley is there anything wilfred brimley's in that's not good cocoon was great um the the movie with paul newman absence of malice i think what, what he was in he's great in everything I could watch him in a diabetes commercial and be completely enthralled. The man was great. Uh, if, if he was in a movie, I was like, I, I think I may have to check it out. All right. Uh, in the last few minutes we have, first of all, two things. Before we started the podcast, you said, what's your pre-podcast snack? I said Whoppers, which, by the way, I only went to because it was available. As I That's said fair. to you, Milk Duds would be the go-to, but I don't have Milk Duds in the house right now. But when you're in the theater, what's the go-to snack? I will tell you, I'm a, I'm a buttered popcorn guy with Reese's Pieces dropped in. So in the dark, you don't know if you're going to get the chocolate bite or the popcorn. It's a mixture of salt. And, and I'm, a, I'm, a big, I'm a big sweets guy. So candy's my, I, I love candy, but I, lo- I never eat popcorn unless I'm at the theater. So that's my go-to. What, what's, your, what's your movie sweet choice? 
my movie sweet choice is I have a question for you first. Have you seen the movie Step Brothers with Will Ferrell and John C. Riley? I have, yes. Okay. This is the scene where they realize that they're best friends because for the first time, I've done M&Ms and popcorn, and one of my friends recommended Sour Patch Kids and popcorn, which is actually pretty good. Really? But I, I went back to the theater for the first time in a year to see Godzilla versus Kong because I'm not watching that at home. And I got a big bucket of popcorn and they were out of milk duds. And so I went Reese's Pieces and about a, a fourth of the way into my bucket of corn, I said, you know what? Let's take these Reese's for a spin, dumped them in the popcorn. One of the best movie eating experiences I have ever had. So I fully co-sign your choice, sir. So had you met me years ago, you would have been way ahead. It wouldn't have happened by accident. You're like <laughs> the guy who drops the, the chocolate into the peanut butter and discovers the Reese's peanut butter cups all those years later. I mean, you know, there are certain things that I consider myself an expert in. Candy is one of them, by the way. Yeah, I mean, that's how Doc Brown found time travel. It was an accident. He well, slipped in his head. And let, let me put it this way. I, I have a guy that I do business with who every year, you know, it's the classic. He sends you a Christmas gift because he's got to keep you in his good graces. So he sent, you know, he first started out with a bottle of wine. I'm 58 years old. And I'm like, you know, wines. He started when I was like 50. So he sent me a bottle of wine. The next year. He sent me something called Old Time Candy, candy you ate as a kid. It's a website that you pick candy from the 60s or the 70s or the 80s. And now he sends me candy from the 70s. So wow. I get that one year. And I called him immediately after I got it. And I said, listen, thank you for the gift. And let me tell you something. I know you're going to try and be inventive next year or do something new. I want candy every year. Okay. If you're sending a gift, that's what I want. And now for a decade, not only does he send me a big box of Old Time Candy, but I sit around with my kids and we conduct the candy draft. Okay. Yes. We lay all the candy out. We do a blind draw and my wife's in it. She'll go for razzles in the first round. Wax lips always go in the last round. You know, there's the candy cigarettes there. in my son who was six, when candy cigarettes in the second round, we evaluate the draft, but I love candy. I can do a podcast on candy. Yeah. So candy cigarettes. Candy advice, I'm it. I, I, I would love that. And now that you recommended that website to me, I'm going to send you my dentist bill because this is directly your fault. And I looked at if you're doing a draft, because that's what every kid does after Halloween, right? Is you get yeah, all the candy yeah. out, then you look to trade with your friends. And my dad would always be the candy agent, meaning he got 15% of any transaction that went through. And the, the bubblegum cigarettes, I feel like, are the, the, the tease. Like, every kid thinks it's cool to have a bubblegum cigarette. So it's like when you draft a quarterback in the first round of your fantasy draft. You don't need it, but you just you want it that bad. Right. There's always a couple that are big mistakes. Wax bottles, you know, that are filled <laughs> with it. It's a huge mistake. My yes, son, when he was is. young, would go for wax bottles early. And if you're good at the candy draft, you have to think about what they're thinking in the next round. Because if you want to watch them a call it, you may be able to get it in round four and mm -hmm. not reach for it in round two. But again, we can always revisit that come, you know, the holidays when I get my new box of candy. <laughs> All right, give me real quick before you go. Outside of baseball, because I have mine, your two favorite sports movies, absent of genre, absent of baseball, football, basketball. I have three. Give me three, because I have three on my list. What are your three? Okay, my three favorite sports movies that I'm going to exclude baseball from the conversation. Okay. Um, my three favorite sports movies. Number one, my favorite sports movie of all time is still White Men Can't Jump. Okay. Very influential on me and my game. And with the ladies and with basketball. Uh, number two is the football movie that is just eternally rewatchable. And that is Remember the Titans. 
Okay. Um, right. Simply for Denzel. And my dad played against that team when he was a high school football player a few years after that, after those events. So, and number three, I am going to go with the movie that is going to solidify Bruce's win against his buddy because Caddyshack had such a profound effect on me. I didn't see it until college. I didn't see it until I was in college and I put it on and I was right at the time of my life. And I was thinking, you know, college and learning is fun, but I think I'm pretty funny. I wonder if I could be a comedian one day. I put that on the scene where Rodney Dangerfield pulls up and just starts killing one liners. (laughs) I was hooked. I'm in. Caddyshack is what I still tell my mom to this day. If you want somebody to blame for why I'm a comedian, blame Caddyshack. All right, let me just say this podcast may reach an audience of one, but it's going to be my ex-partner because you have settled the debate. Now, let me give you my three. Uh, The original Longest Yard with Burt Reynolds. Yep. Which I saw in high school and you watch it today. It's very dated. But first of all, Burt Reynolds could play football. He played at Florida State, you know, so Mm -hmm. and and there were some ex-players in that movie, as a matter of fact. So they pulled off the football part of it. And by the way, the guys that played for the, you know, for the for the cons, they weren't football players, so they weren't supposed to look like football players. You know, like Jaws, Richard Keel played, you know, a big lineman. Yep. But he wasn't supposed to look like a football. He was just supposed to be a big guy. I, I, I love the story again. Also a good ending. Um, number two on my list, Rocky. Now, I saw that in the theater. Rocky was the only movie I've ever seen in the theater where the audience was actually standing and giving it a standing ovation at the end. And wow. you may appreciate this now, but... When I saw the movie in the theater, nobody knew who won the fight. Because remember, it's announced over the crowd, you know, that, that Apollo yeah. Creed wins, you know, winner by split decision. When we walked out of the theater, we didn't know who the, won the fight because everybody was up. I mean, I'm in a movie theater. It's 1976, I think. You know, I'm on spring break with a friend. And, and the whole audience is up giving it a standing ovation while they're making the announcement. I walked out of the theater having no idea who won that fight. That is that, that's the, for you. And I, now that I know you a little bit. That's the way to leave that movie is so that you didn't know that Rocky didn't actually win the fight, but he won at life. And the only reason why Rocky four was not in my top three is because Rocky four is not a movie. It's a documentary. And I will say that until my dying breath. <laughs> Rock, which one was Rocky four again, by the way? Rocky three. He, was Drago. Uh, he, he Rocky four is Drago. Rocky four. So, is, wait, Rocky two was the same as Rocky one, except he gets up and wins at the end. Gets Rocky up and wins 3 was end. Mr. T? Yes, sir. Okay, and then Rocky 4 was the most cliche movie ever because Drago's in the lab getting shot up and, you know, Rocky's running through the snow with a log on his... I mean, it was like... It was Again, ridiculous. Bruce, that's documentary footage of a real event that actually happened and Rocky 5 doesn't exist as far as I'm concerned. We go right, right to Rocky right. Balboa. I've got to share my favorite sports movie and you can settle this debate too if you've seen it, which I assume you have. My favorite sports movie of all time, Sucker for a Happy Ending, Hoosiers. Pretty now, tough. are you a Hoosiers guy? Pretty tough to, to knock Hoosiers. I am a Hoosiers guy to a point because it bothers me. There's a couple of things in that movie that bother me. One, I know that these kids are undersized and, and undermatched, but they're playing a team comprised of mainly black players in 1950. And so I'm just thinking, okay, well, what did that team have to go through? What, what sort of <laughs> crap did that team have to go through just to get to the finals? You know, but, but, the story of, of Gene Hackman, Barbara Hershey getting together, the kids, Buddy hitting the grandma's shot, Dennis Hopper. It, it, it's, there's so much greatness in Hoosiers. And again, Gene Hackman might be my favorite actor of all time. First of all, Gene Hackman, too, from anything he's in, love him. But 
first of all, all the kids could play because they weren't actors. They were all like, I mean, for most of them, that was their only film credit. Right. You know, I mean, it's amazing. Um, maybe one or two of them, you know, they didn't have a lot of lines in the movie. And even when they did deliver a line, you could tell that they weren't professional actors. They were kids that were playing high school basketball. All of them could play, by the way, which oh, I yeah. think was, was critical to the movie. But I've had this debate with my producer, who I'm sure is going to chime in when we're done. And he said, who's the villain in the movie? And I said, I don't really think there is a villain in the movie. The storyline is just about them. And he goes, no, it's the team they beat in the finals, which is, you know, cliche because it is, like you said, the big city team with, Afri with, with black players on it. But they would have been the villains if you were following them the whole movie. If they were the ones you learned to hate all along, you didn't see them until the last five minutes. They had nothing to do with the story. The only thing that the story was about was this team. The villain was Gene Hackman and them learning to embrace him at the end. That was the villain in the movie. And they all come to love each other at the end. I think the villain of the movie is poor genetics. I think that that is <laughs> who we're battling against the entire movie, sprinkling a little bit of alcoholism there. And you got yourself go picture. I can't that, that to me. And I cry at the end. I love you guys. I, I, I get I get misty eyed there and I enjoy watching Jimmy Chitwood to this day because I still feel like he would have been a great contributor on the 2004 Detroit Pistons. He could have been that Rip Hamilton role where you're not ne necessarily knocking down a lot of trays because they didn't have the three point line back then. But he's so good at running off screens and just finding that 15, 20 foot shot. All right. But that's the one scene that bugs me. That's the only scene that bugs me. Last play in the last game when Gene Hackman calls the play. And the whole team like looks away like they're disappointed in the play call. And Gene Hackman goes, what's wrong? And, and, and Jimmy goes, I'll make it. And then he recalls the play. Because remember, Dennis Hopper earlier said, we'll run the picket fence, which worked to perfection. Mm -hmm. They get the bucket. And Gene Hackman had a good play call. And then they went with the, you know, let's isolate Jimmy. But again, it doesn't matter. He makes the shot and they win. And that's all that matters. You know, He'd, and, uh, hey, if you asked Aaron Rodgers how last season should have played out, I think maybe he would have liked Matt LaFleur to have been Gene Hackman in that moment and said, <laughs> right. OK, wait, if you're going to make this fourth and eight, we'll give you the ball. Right. So, so you've learned one thing. I've learned a lot about you, but you've learned one thing about me. I'm a sucker for a happy ending. Yes, That's you it. are. Uh, I am. If it ends well, I'm a sucker for it. And I, I, I have no guilt about that. I, I wear that on my sleeve. I'm a happy ending movie guy. The only guilt you should have walking out of a movie theater is the fact that you just ate 2,000 calories in popcorn and Reese's Pieces, and that is a guilt I can live with. Uh, I can live with that, too, because it happens. Well, first of all, it may never happen again with theaters, but it happens, it happens very infrequently. Uh, listen, I, I, wanna, I, I can't thank you enough. I'm telling you, I think this is a conversation that never ends. Guys in sports movies never ends. <laughs> I'm glad that you could spend some time with me and, and suffer along with me. Uh, contributing editor of Rotten Tomatoes, co-host of Rotten Tomatoes is wrong podcast. I like a guy that can poke fun at himself and a guy who admittedly is only here because he was the first guy to discover YouTube. So <laughs> I'm happy to hear about the history of all that. And maybe one day we'll get more about that. But thanks for spending some time with me today. That was great. Hey, I appreciate you, Bruce. It's great to talk with you and tell your boy, D.B. Sweeney, he was fantastic as Travis Walton in Fire in the Sky. One of my favorite alien movies of all time. See, you love that. I love Eight Men Out, and my wife loves The Cutting Edge. DB, baby. I it's mean, all he, about DB. He, he's made them all. DB Sweeney. Um, I will tell him when I talk to him, but, but, but thank you again. Thank you. Well, that was fun. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope, if nothing else, it spurs a debate between yourself and your friends and anybody else 
that you get into a conversation with. Because I know this, if you listen to this podcast, you're going to find your friends that have a love of movies and a love of baseball and say, can you believe so-and-so said this? Can you believe so-and-so said that? And you'll start your own debate. Come up with your own top 10. But that's exactly what we did and had a little fun with that. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. Going Long is also available on the SiriusXM app. It's free for most subscribers. Just download it today and tap Podcasts. Going Long is part of the SiriusXM Podcast Network. The executive producer is Andrew Emmer. Sound designed by Robert Moore. Andy King is the director of sports podcasting for SiriusXM. Special thanks to SiriusXM's Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen. I hope you'll join me very soon. I'm Bruce Murray. SiriusXM Podcasts.